0: I have here in the studio today Sonia Trous of SF Barf. What does SF Barf stand for, Sonia? A
1: Bay Area Renters Federation.
0: But she's also known by a phrase that's becoming more and more popular. She's also known as a Yimby, yes, in my backyard, as opposed to Nimby's, not in my backyard. And let me read a quote. She was recently covered in the New York Times. You have to support building, even when it's a type of building you hate, she said. Is it ugly? Get over yourself. Is it low-income housing? Get over yourself. Is it luxury housing? Get over yourself. We really need everything right now. In addition, though, to representing her organization, SF Barf, and voicing these concerns that we need to build more housing, she's also done some other really interesting things. She tried to take over the Sierra Club in San Francisco, she sued cities outside of San Francisco to force them to take more housing. If, if you know San Francisco in the Bay Area, you know Google and other big companies, there's no housing there. Their employees live in, in, the, in San Francisco itself, in downtown. So I'm really interested to have her here because what's going on in San Francisco is similar to what's going on in Seattle, but it's true in any big city in which it has a strong economy that conflict between job creation and building enough housing for people is a tough one, and the YIMBY movement is, you know, it's the next thing. So, Sonia, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, I, I want to know, how did you get involved in this? How long have you been in San Francisco, and how did you f- how you figure out that this is what you were going to work on?
1: Um, well, I moved to San Francisco in 2011, and I started working, um, I was teaching high school math, and at first... I didn't know I was gonna get involved in anything like this. Um, when I lived in Philadelphia, where I'm from, I used to uh, I used to work for my neighborhood association. So I guess I've always I mean I've always been interested in local politics. But you know, from 2011 to now, prices were rising so fast. Um, we were coming out of the recession, and you know, San Francisco was adding jobs. It just seemed very straightforward that if you have more people you need more housing. And we're adding a lot of high-income jobs. And San Francisco is actually very, is a pretty expensive place to build under any circumstances because it is an earthquake zone. And it's it, it has a limited land area. So it's appropriate to build high. And tall building is very expensive per square foot kind of a thing. And I saw that, I felt like San Francisco was missing its opportunity to turn all of these you know, high wages into new tall buildings. And that to me was such a shame because the high income workers are paying high rents either way. But it's a total waste for them to pay high rents on buildings that were finished 100 years ago. You know, they should be paying high rents um, that basically go to pay off construction loans. Because San Francisco needs tall buildings. So I started organizing friends of mine who agreed with me. And we started going to planning commission hearings just any Thursday that I could get a couple people to come with me and testifying in favor of anything, you know, everything that was there.
0: That's a big step, though, to say, I moved to a new town. I don't see housing. I want to go down to the planning committee meeting. What was going through your head?
1: I don't think it seemed like a big step. It seemed like pretty obvious and straightforward. You know, like from my experience in Philadelphia, I had a little bit of an idea of how that public process worked around building. Um, in, in Philadelphia, the action is all at zoning commission hearings. It's not exactly the same, but I knew that there was a place for the public to go make speeches in front of decision makers. You know, we were already making impassioned speeches, but it was to each other, like at the bar or over Facebook. And, you know, at the time, that felt like doing nothing now that I've actually been organizing and I'm in politics a little bit, I actually realize that those conversations you have with your friends are the public conversation. We weren't doing nothing at the time, but it still felt to me like nothing. Um, so I decided to go make these speeches in front of actual decision makers. And it was, people were, it, it was very surprising to people.
0: What was surprising?
1: That, you know, random, unaffiliated renters would just show up out of nowhere, I very much felt, I mean, I realized that what we have, the building, we're always going to be under building as long as there's not some mechanism for the future residents of a building to have input. So we felt like we were proxies, you know, for the hundred residents that were going to live in a 70-unit development. Um, Normally, when you're making a public policy decision- There's an opportunity for both sides to make their case, both to decision makers and to each other. But when you're thinking of building a new building, it's a classic concentrated harms, distributed benefits kind of problem. So when you're building a building, the immediate neighbors who have no use for a building because they already have a place to live, they only see downsides. They know about it. You know, they're there. They know when the meetings are. But the future residents, like, where are they? You know, they maybe they still live in Minnesota, Maybe they live in the South Bay. They don't know to come. And so we felt that we should go be proxies for them.
0: So when we were talking earlier before the show, you had spoken about that you had moved from Philadelphia and you were just shocked because in Philadelphia, people are excited Yeah. when they see investment. Tell tell me what you were thinking when Ye- you got to San Francisco.
1: Yeah, I was, well, first of all, I felt tricked because San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco has always been expensive. San Francisco was expensive in 2011. I mean, even though it was less expensive then than now. I actually thought that I was going to be coming to a kind of Manhattan West, and I was very surprised when I got there. Not just how underbuilt it seemed, considering that it had been a center of you know in- industry.
0: And commerce.
1: Yeah, for a pretty long time, and considering that it's so expensive. That was one of the first things that really frustrated me, was that I felt like I was paying New York prices, but not getting
0: (laughs) a New York experience
1: (laughs) not exactly I mean in some ways no I mean it just doesn't San Francisco doesn't have the diversity of industry doesn't have the diversity of culture or the or the diversity of arts that I would have expected from a real world-class city Um, and I think that it doesn't have that stuff because for the last 30 40 years there's been really tight growth controls it's not fair It's not fair to people that want to come to San Francisco to make a living. Um, It's not fair to people who are born there who want to be able to move out of their parents' house. Or people who moved away, but they want to move back.
0: See, it's interesting because oftentimes people blame the newcomers for all the ills of the place. And I hear you saying something different.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. The other thing that I think is so weird is that how did people that live in the West not absorb the American idea of the West? Right. So my grandparents were refugees and I'm very glad that they were able to get to the United States. They came after World War II. They were not interested in going back to Poland at all. Right. Like they lived in the Warsaw Ghetto. The ghetto had been demolished. Every single building in the ghetto was razed completely to the ground. And the people that lived there were killed, you know, or displaced. So there were, there was no home for them. You know, they came to Philadelphia and that was their home. And I guess I'm kind of a sucker. Like I really believed in like America as like a place that, like, refugees can come and people can come and, you know, make a new life for themselves. And the West is, like, the most American part of America. Like, if other countries, if people in other countries imagine themselves coming to America to make a better life, people in America imagine themselves going to the West to make a better life. You did that. That's what I... I came here for economic opportunity. Yeah. I mean, Philadelphia is a great place, but... And it is growing now. But we had easily 50 years of declining population. I mean, for two generations, my dad's whole life, my whole life until I left, the anxiety in Philadelphia was disinvestment. You know, it was companies leaving. So, you know, I mean, lack of jobs also displaces people. And that's one thing. Like, a lot of the newcomers in San Francisco are absolutely displaced by the lack of economic opportunity in the place they came from. And then we come to the Bay Area, and then we meet these people that somehow never got the memo that the place they live is a Mecca. And they're like surprised and angry, you know, that that Americans and, and foreigners are coming there trying to make a better life.
0: I mentioned this at the beginning, the phrase Yimby versus the phrase Nimby. And so what is it like in San Francisco if somebody wants to build an apartment building or if somebody wants to build a high rise or even a duplex?
1: Um, well, it kind of depends, you know, those three different building types, right? You, get, you have a different path. The first thing is we don't have as-of-right development, which Seattle does have. Seattle, I would love to be in Seattle situation. So in Seattle and in New York and in many, many other cities in Philadelphia, the normal thing is for cities is once they make the, the zoning, you know, the planning for the area is done, then if a developer wants to build something within the planning, then they just do it. They go get their building permits. They don't have to go back to planning. Because why would you? Planning already... Publish what it wants to see there. Now that is not what we have in San Francisco. Um, in San Francisco, even if you're totally within your zoning, we have design review, but we also have a separate public hearing process uh, where you have to get maybe a large project authorization, or you know, there's a number of different permits that you might have to get. And that gives people, that gives the neighbors the opportunity to oppose, you know, whatever you're going to do. Um, and neighbors definitely do it. There's definitely a feeling in San Francisco, or a strong feeling, that new building uh, creates impacts and creates harm. Um, Whenever you build a new building, uh, you have to have a meeting with the neighbors before you start your process, which is actually probably a good requirement. And at those meetings, and we've been to many, uh, the first thing that neighbors ask is, well, what community benefit are you going to bring? Like, what are you going to do for us? Which is so funny, because to me, I feel like housing is a community benefit. The community benefit is you're going to build the housing. Housing is infrastructure. People need it. You know, (laughs) they need somewhere to live. But that's not the attitude.
0: No, the attitude is it's a negative impact that has to be mitigated. Yeah. And, you know, we face the same issue here in Seattle, right? What's the impact and how do you mitigate the impact, whether it's parking or traffic or who knows what else is is the impact that's supposed to be mitigated? so what's going on what why is why do people hold that attitude what's your best figuring it out and and what's the solution to get over the attitude of neighborhood opposition to new construction
1: well it's not uniform right there are people whose instinct goes the other way whether it's because like for me actually i got involved with my neighborhood association in philadelphia over 10 years ago because it was 2006 2007 suddenly capital was interested in Philadelphia which was so weird to us but kind of nice um, and people wanted to build in the neighborhood I was living in and yeah there were neighbors that were suspicious and not necessarily supportive I was immediately excited because I wanted better retail and this is a very common reason that people do support development because they they live in a neighborhood that they feel is underserved by retail or the retail that is there I don't know they don't like Um, And so they think that the new development is going to, is going to bring the stores that they want. And then there's other reasons for people to be, you know, for development. Like, it also makes um, public transportation more possible. You know, if you're not happy with the public transit in your neighborhood, the best thing you can do is have another 100 residents, like. Maybe some of them will be interested in agitating with you and you've, for better you've bus re- service.
0: You've recruited people who support you in this effort. Oh, so cl- absolutely. So there are clearly there's there's who. So who are the people that are for it? You're doing anybody, a little bit of that.
1: I mean, anybody that came to San Francisco from a from a bigger city, you know, because all of them are like, wait, so many of San Francisco's problems could be solved by just building, and they live places with high density, and they liked it. So, and I mean, San Francisco is dense, absolutely. Um, but the entire Bay Area isn't, and San Francisco just—I mean, it is dense, but it could still be denser. Um, my first, one of my first supporters was from Hong Kong, you know, and he was very much like, "What is what's the problem here?" Also, people who feel there is like a cultural aspect, you know, there's there is like a lot of hostility to tech workers as tech workers, which is another thing that I'm—I feel like—is so obviously mean spirited, and so tech workers are kind of like. In reaction to that, you know, they're like, "Why can't you make room for us?"
0: So you're finding support among amongst the new p- people who are moving to town. Yeah, who are getting the new jobs.
1: Yeah, people. Yeah, the new workers and the new jobs. The people that employ those people, you know, because if or yeah, if you have employees, then you know how bad the jobs, the housing situation is. Or if you're trying to hire, um, and then also, you know, adult. I mean, adults, um, longtime homeowners who have kids and their kids are still living with them. That's actually in Mountain View. Mountain View has, is often lumped in together with Cupertino and Palo Alto and Sunnyvale being very anti-growth. But Mountain View actually recently authorized the creation of 8,000 units, which is going to increase their population by 30 percent, which is incredible. And that was led by a city councilman who I met who said that he had been, you know, anti-growth. But then one day he woke up and he was like, both my kids live with me and they're both well into their 20s. This is terrible. And that really changed his mind. And he said that the main way that he was able, you know, to, to push through this, this project through was by talking to people. And there was a lot of people who ha- were having that experience. Um, so, yeah, anybody that employs anyone, anyone who has kids that they want to be able to, like, live near them but not in their house, newcomers, and then also, like, urbanists, right, people who just like cities, people who either as a hobby Find it interesting and fun to read about city planning or architecture, or people who are you know urban urban uh, studies majors, planners, they're, architects. They're probably
0: drawn to it for a reason, though. Yeah. You know, there's something about cities. Yeah. And making them work. I mean, I was drawn to it. You know. Yeah. For, I mean,
1: me too, as personality type.
0: Yeah. So you started off just by rounding up some folks and heading down to planning commission meetings. Where's what next? Where did it lead you to, and what did you start thinking about? How to influence policy.
1: Um, It actually, I was really surprised at how few people you need in your, you know, political social group um, to get the attention of supervisors, which is what we call city council people in San Francisco. Yeah, I really thought that I had to have an organization with like thousands of members before I could ever talk to a supervisor. That is false. If your organization has like 12 members, that's plenty enough for you to get meetings. Um, So I feel like moving from just, at first, my goal was to just show that public support for building exists because it felt invisible. I knew that we were out there. I wanted to connect. I wanted us to all connect to each other. Um, And I wanted to just show anyone, the public, the electeds, that we existed. And so I was very conscious that I'm building a social world. You know, um, you know, we would have like happy hours and stuff too. But mostly I was like really keen to try to get people to City Hall and get people to know that they don't really need me. You know, like that anyone has access to City Hall whenever you want, because that's how NIMBY's operate. You know, they don't have a center. NIMBY's they see a project going up across the street from, from them and suddenly like they have a direct connection to the truth that that project should not happen like we can do that too you know like we don't need yeah there's there doesn't have to be a center we can go directly to our our elected officials and we really should so i was trying i'm trying to make a social world because people are social animals and they like to have company and they like to like have support um but also trying to like kind of train people that they can do this on their own
0: but you didn't stop there you started thinking about some other tactics after that
1: Yeah, so we found out that, actually, uh, California has some pretty good um, housing laws. I said before that we don't have as-of-right building. So we have this weird situation. You know, cities have a bureaucratic system with many points along the way that allow the local government to turn a project down. But actually, it's state law that even though you're going before a board or a commission— and ostensibly making a presentation and then the border commission is voting up or down on it. Um, if your proposal is within the zoning, they don't have discretion to vote no. They have to say yes. And this is a kind of an artifact of the state and the city's uh, not being on the same page, right? The state is trying to control the city's behavior. The city sets up this bureaucratic stuff. To say no. To say no. But and there's it, a
0: state law out there that says you're really supposed to say yes. Yeah, you
1: have to say yes neat. And it's very, very underused because it's on developers really to enforce it. And developers hate to sue to get um, entitlements because almost all developers have more than one development. And, you know, maybe in one case, you're 100% within your zoning. But in another case, maybe you do need a variance. And so you don't want to antagonize the city. The other thing is for investors, you know, people don't want to invest in a project. They don't want to invest in a lawsuit. Right. So you might be able to win your lawsuit, but that doesn't mean you want to spend a half a million dollars in three years.
0: So it sounds like the next tactic was a lawsuit.
1: Lawsuits. So California is also amazing that any um, citizen can sue to enforce state law. And when I found that out, I was like, it is on. So we, we found this crazy case. I mean, I learned about all this stuff because in Lafayette, there was a developer, a landowner really, who wasn't afraid to threaten to use the Housing Accountability Act. And for a while the newspaper was covering it that way, but then the developer and the city kind of negotiated a settlement. Right. So initially the developer proposed 315 apartments, which would have been moderately priced um, for moderate income people, and there was a lot of fighting, and then four years passed, and the developer wound up getting approval for 44 single family homes, which are not affordable to moderate income people. <laughs> It's a it's a fancy suburb. Um, and that and the, so the developer was kind of like, whatever. I mean, I could do a small number of super expensive things or a large number of um, moderately priced things. I, I come out the same. So the developer sort of accepted that negotiation. But my position, you know, I have a partner and we uh, incorporated a nonprofit. Um, our position was that this is still a violation of the state law. So um, I wrote the petition because we kind of found out about it fast and I didn't like get money together fast uh, enough. But I, I submitted the petition and then we hired a lawyer and uh, he amended the petition because Because he knew what he was doing. He was, right. <laughs> mine
0: wasn't perfect.
1: <laughs> and now, actually, is today the 27th? Oh, today's the 29th. Um, the 27th, they just, had a, they just had a meeting. I have to call a lawyer and see what's going to happen next.
0: So this lawsuit's live. Oh, it's live, yeah. You're suing the city of Lafayette saying you should have approved 315 apartment units instead of 44 single-family homes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it turns out, and the lawyer is clever because we have a state version sort of of the Fair Housing Act, Uh um, which says that by disapproving apartments, you know, you might be uh, having a disparate impact on, you know, people of color. The t- Lafayette is, like, at least 97% white. And, yeah, no, apartments are disproportionately um, lived in by people of color. So we added that to the lawsuit. I mean, we could maybe do a federal case. The, the statute of limitations, I think, on fair housing at lawsuits is a year. Um, I don't know if my lawyer, like, is up for a federal case, but we could do that.
0: So have you done this against any other... Cities in the region, or just not Not yet. yet Actually,
1: if listeners want to send us a good lawsuit somewhere else, um, basically what we need is the thing is the reason why the lawsuits are a little bit hard to do is that a lot of times developers will they'll so the thing that was different about this is that the developer submitted the 315 unit application and then was negotiated down later you know so they had done that initial right, so they, submission right so
0: it's a pretty easy contrast that you can point out to the right, court right that more should have been allowed but it's interesting you see in garden city new york there's a lawsuit yeah. around and i grew up on long island and so garden city is a very nice suburb of new york city and the lawsuit was that their zoning excluded people of color and that lawsuit's been succeeding
1: yeah yeah they won i think
0: yeah well it's one thing to win it's another thing to actually get the apartment, yeah, buildings, get the apartment buildings built, was built. As we've discovered. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and there was one in Arizona, too. Yuba County, I think. Yeah, no, we could do these. These are these are federal suits. Um, so for the Housing Accountability Act stuff, the kind of thing that we're looking for is a developer that submitted a project, and that project is within its zoning but stalled. Right. Um, and the city actually has to act, turn it down for the project to be ripe. And what usually happens is one of two things: like one, either the developer doesn't submit. You know, they do the negotiation. Sure, before they the figure submission. out in
0: advance what's going to get through the system. Right, and that's all they do.
1: Right, and then so we can't do anything, you right. know, because they already submitted the lower density project. There's nothing to compare it
0: to. I'm I'm just still struck by by this because you know it's you flip the entire equation on its head. I mean, in the usual course of action, a, a a project is proposed, people oppose it, and then they use the legal means at their disposal yeah. to stop it. And you've just flipped it all on its head. It's like it's been proposed, approved, and you said, no, not good enough. I'm <laughs> suing you. You should have allowed the better thing. Yeah. You know, and in your case, the better thing is more housing. More housing. More housing. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's... It's pretty fascinating, and you're and like you said, you've been doing this through a nonprofit that you formed or through a, an association that you formed. SF Barf. No, so
1: the the SF Barf is an unincorporated club. Got it. And I definitely recommend for activists. I there's normally I don't think any reason to incorporate. People Got ask it. me, I don't think it's a good idea to incorporate. All it does is 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 limit what you can do. Now lawsuits are expensive. And so paying for the lawsuit, raising money for it, that was a good time to incorporate as a nonprofit. Got it. But if you are just, you're you just and your friends, if you're just showing
0: up to testify, just showing up to make a point. Yeah, you don't do need not it. incorporate. Got it. So <laughs> the other thing that's really fascinating to me is is, you know, and this is this is a world that I lived in. I I was a member of the Sierra Club for years. I was chair of the state chapter. I was active in my local group. And and each chapter and group is different, but there's a real tension within, you know, people who call themselves environmentalists or progressives or liberals on the issue of urban housing. There's a lot of people who oppose it because it represents growth and consumption and capitalism and pollution. Um, but there's huge amount of evidence that, you know, creating places for people to live in, in denser urban areas means less pollution than if they lived outside of the city and less global warming emissions, et cetera. So you tried to take over the local Sierra Club because you thought they were on the wrong side of that issue. Did I I have this right?
1: They were, I mean, they were off mission. They have actually, the the local Sierra Club's um, mission statement includes uh, support for compact development, right? Because that's an anti-sprawl and anti-global warming position. Nonetheless, um, the local Sierra Club was issuing resolutions against proposed height limit increases. So at first, we had no particular notion of running anybody for the executive board, but, you know, I signed up, and I think maybe at the time, like another 20 people or something signed up. I was like, this is crazy. Let's become members. Let's start going to their meetings. And we went to, you know, the first meeting we went to, we asked them right out. I asked them. I was like, if if you, your mission statement says you know, compact development, why did you oppose a height limit increase? And it was for a specific building. And the answer, Becky Evans, she she didn't even answer. She says, oh, we oppose that building because we don't like the parking ratio. The parking ratio is too high. So I was like, you have a pretty big typo in your resolution. Because here it says opposing height limit increase. If you wanted to oppose the parking ratio, oppose the parking ratio. And she just... I couldn't believe it. So I kind of felt like we had like they knew they were wrong. Um, also, funny thing about that, that building currently is a six story parking lot. So the current parking ratio is infinity and the proposed parking ratio was like 0. 0.8. So they wanted it to be 0. 0.5. Point, 0.8 is still lower than infinity, you know, so whatever. Um, anyway, so we were going to those meetings. And
0: so, OK, I'm just going to clarify sorry. here. what you're saying is, no, no, don't <laughs> apologize. I'm just jumping in here. What you're saying was somebody was going to tear down a parking garage to right. put up ho- urban housing, right? And the Sierra Club was opposing it because they wanted even less parking, right? But right. you didn't believe that that was the real reason.
1: Well, that was if that was the real reason, that's what the resolution would have said. I mean, they came right out. They, the resolution was so the the developer the the height limit at the place was twenty stories. The developer wanted it to be thirty stories. This is um, like in Rincon Hill, you know, which is San Francisco's high rise neighborhood. Um, and the Sierra, and they were, I mean, they were asking for spot zoning, which I think is fine. I like spot zoning, but. Right. I mean, they, so don't.
0: they were asking for variants to get yeah. a taller building. Right. So what happened after that? So you went, you discovered they were off mission. What'd you do?
1: Yeah. So eventually one of our members, the Donald Dusnup, who, um, was one that was involved in the Sierra Club and sort of alerted me to them being off mission. We found out that there was a election coming up for the executive committee. And I was like, Donald, why don't you run? And he was like, yeah, that would be great. You know, he's really excited, super active, volunteer, super enthusiastic, you know. So I thought this will be interesting. Like, we've never run anything for any, you know, a campaign. So I signed up a whole bunch of, I signed up like a little over 200 new members. And these elections normally only 200 people vote. Uh, so I was like, we're going to have a fighting chance. This is great. Well, we didn't keep it secret at all because that's not my style, Um, And it turned out, actually, that there were there was already a pro growth person kind of in the mix. And so we were going to endorse him also. And then there were three other like pro development people that I kind of knew, you know, in the political scene um, who were also running. And I didn't even know that, which meant we had a whole full slate of people that we could endorse. There were five uh, five openings and we had five people. So we ran that slate. And it just became, like, huge local news. It was hilarious, I guess. And it turned out that 800 people wound up voting in that election. So we were destroyed. Um.
0: The outsiders (laughs) trying to take over the Sierra Club.
1: (laughs) That's what they said, but I felt like we weren't outsiders. We joined. We were members. Once we joined, we were members. And we were just trying to get them back on mission. That was the most frustrating thing about the narrative. It's true. The narrative is we're taking over. But I didn't feel like I was trying to get the Sierra Club to do anything, you know, outside of its mission.
0: This is just one of the biggest issues in the environmental movement is, well, I don't know if I should. I'm making grandiose statements that I just don't know add up or not. So I'm just <laughs> going to re, restart that one. But I do think it's a division within the environmental movement because historically it was about protecting wild places from encroaching people. You know, environmentalism for a very long time was about protecting wilderness and rivers. I mean, that was John Muir. He landed in San Francisco and fled the city to head to the Sierra. So we create this dichotomy between, you know, wilderness and city, between people and nature. And for me, the light bulb went off with global warming because there was no more dichotomy. Everybody shared the same atmosphere.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: You, you, we couldn't set aside, we couldn't preserve that wilderness area anymore because our activity on the planet was going to change that wilderness area, you know, in a way that it wouldn't support wildlife. It wouldn't, it might not support trees, it might not support salmon. Right? We had to think about ourselves in an integrated way, not as a division between us. And that was one of the things that led me to really getting much more deeply involved in, in you know, walking and biking and transit. I mean. I, out here in Seattle, over half of our emissions are from transportation. Yeah. And once you get into that, you realize, well, if walking and biking and transit is going to work, people have to be near where they want to go. <laughs> you know, We can't be spread out all over the place. So all of these things led me to view this as being just absolutely critical was how do we live? And so environmentalism, in my mind, came out of the mountains and the rivers and came right down to the center of the cities because that's where people live. That's where people use stuff. But a lot of particularly older environmentalists, and I don't want to overgeneralize because- You're older. I'm older and there's lots of folks who get it, but it strikes me that the younger generation gets this a lot better than the older generation does the, that environmental argument. But there's also just the aesthetic and the, and the quality of life argument that, that people will make also for having better cities and being able to live in a city. So I just went off and spoke for a minute or two because, <laughs> because this is an issue that bugs me. But clearly it bugs you too that people can't embrace the positive values of making it easier for people to live in a city.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't get my driver's license till I lived in St. Louis and I was 30 years old. You know, when I was 12, my dad put a, you know, SEPTA token in my hand. I asked him for a ride somewhere and he's like, do it yourself. And then when I was 16, my parents were like, you can get your license, but you'll have to pay your own insurance. And I was like, well, that sounds like a terrible deal. And I learned how to ride a bike, and that was that, till I was 30. Um, and then, you know, and I moved away. Um, actually, I didn't really start driving till I moved to Oakland.
0: I didn't really start driving till I moved to Eugene, Oregon. I grew up on Long Island and lived in right uh, New York area, then D.C. And, no, I, I figured out how much. I remember I was in D.C., and I wanted a car because my girlfriend lived on the other side of town and wasn't on the metro, and I wanted to get out of town. And then I did the math, and it's was like, I'm taking a cab whenever I right. want because it was so much cheaper than owning a car. So, yeah, it took moving to uh, Eugene, Oregon, where I was like, oh, I need a car now. I have to have one to get around.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a shame, actually. Like, I wound up getting a car, and actually, well— 30 secret, secret no longer. Now I have one. I love driving.
0: Oh, driving's great. <laughs> That's the thing. I, you know, I got a little bit of a reputation uh, in this city. People would go, well, you just hate cars. And it was like, I love cars. No, I, like I love it. cars. But you have to understand, I love donuts. Right. But I don't sit down to a big plate of them every night for dinner. Right. That would be a bad idea, right. right? And, and we, you know, we need to start, re- you know, recognizing that, yes, you can love cars and the convenience it brings, but if, if. Everybody's driving everywhere all the time. It's just not a good idea in the long run.
1: Yeah, and that's why it's so important to build a physical environment that makes walking, you know, just a, or biking like just as comfortable and convenient.
0: Well, I want to try to just go up a high level cuz again, I'm really struck by, you know, that you got engaged in this. I mean, you're a, you're a school teacher who moves to San Francisco. And next thing you know, you're suing cities and testifying in front of the city council and recruiting people and raising funds for your nonprofit. You know, what's the message to people? I and mean, what, what is it ultimately that motivated you to get into this and do all of this? And you, you've shared some of it. But, you know, if you had to just pin it down and say to people, this is why you should care, what would you tell them?
1: Well, whether you should care or not, what I really want people to know is how easy it is to get involved at the local level. You know, that anyone can do it. Like literally, if you start to get involved, you realize that anyone can and anyone does. You know, I definitely (laughs) have met people who were like, well, I don't know if I know enough about the issue. I don't know if I'm articulate enough. And let me tell you, the standard of discourse is very low. Like, don't worry about it. If you're a public comment, the person before you or after you has a guarantee has said something that makes much less sense than when you have to say, you know, so just go. There's no downside. Like, just go. If your first public comment isn't if you're not a very good public speaker, that's fine. You you have a million opportunities Um, that just showing up is so powerful. And like, don't you don't have to worry too much or plan ahead too much. Just get out there.
0: I love that message, Um, and I think the other message to people then is don't worry about your message. Say what's on your mind.
1: Yes, because people's personal stories are actually the most convincing thing. Yeah, people ask me sometimes, like, oh, you know, do I have any talking points or research? And I'm like, no, you don't. Like, the most convincing thing is tell where you live, tell what you think, tell your personal story of why you came to that. I mean, for better or for worse, that is really how the public conversation goes.
0: Okay, so that's the message, get involved. Yeah. But it's get involved for a reason. because well, what you're yeah, saying, you believe in it. Yeah, because you believe in it. But you're also saying it because you said this earlier in the interview. You said you thought a lot of voices were silent that needed to be heard in the discussion. Yeah, um,
1: absolutely. And, oh, don't worry about – so this is the thing. If a decision or a policy affects you, you have standing. You know, one of the things that we do in public conversation a lot is disenfranchise each other. I mean, at first people were trying to tell me – That I lived in Oakland, so I shouldn't comment on San Francisco's land use decisions. Well, that's absurd because all the people displaced from San Francisco moved to Oakland. So absolutely what they're doing is affecting me. And if it's affecting me, then I have standing. And then other times people will try to um, take standing away based on some demographic reason about you. And I don't think that that's right either. Like I don't buy into it. You know, if you have an experience, that's what uh, democracy and like public representation is about. It's to be like, here I am. Here's my experience.
0: So another thing that's fascinating is this whole YIMBY thing. It's, it's it's a movement now. I understand there's a national YIMBY, a North American YIMBY conference. What, yeah. First, what's going on?
1: First ever national conference in Boulder. Better, Bo- Better Boulder is putting it together. Um, Friday, June 17th to Sunday, June 19th. Mark your calendar. You should definitely come out. I think betterboulder.com.
0: So I got I picked a song to start the show. I picked "Pink Houses" by John Cougar Mellencamp because uh, "Ain't That America?" Little pink houses right. for you and me. I just love that line. Um, but it turns out we don't have a house for everybody. You picked the same song.
1: Yeah, but, I, but a different band. I picked the a Veil cover of the same song, so listeners can um, can hear a wide variety of interpretations. <laughs> uh, I feel like I think both actually. I think that song is ironic, right? I mean, I think John Cougar Mellencamp's. Oh no, John Cougar Mellencamp's version is not ironic. I think it's patriotic.
0: I think, I think it's a really interesting song because I think it suggest, I think both interpretations are available, even in the John Cougar Mellencamp, right? That that there are places for you and me, but they're not the same places, and people got to fight for it too. I don't uh, know. I can't
1: wait to hear it again. The Avail version, I think, is definitely ironic or maybe sinister. Because they're a Richmond hardcore band and Richmond is absolutely a place where the houses are empty and falling apart. Well, it's a part of America whose glory days were behind them.
0: What do they know no no? Gonna work in some horizon vacation! Oh yeah! Well there's winners and I'm there's losers. losers, but they ain't no big deal. Simple
1: man, baby pays the thrill, the bills, the bills that kill. I believe that matters.